all people are walking contradictions, both individually and in community. No one is totally consistent in all that he or she does and says. This is because there's an intense, eternal, spiritual battle going on in every nation on earth, and it does not respect any demographic whatsoever. It affects every ethnicity, culture, language, gender, age, you name it, everyone. And everyone is born on the wrong side of this battle. The Apostle John concluded by saying that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. What a sobering thought. And for all these reasons above, Jesus called called out hypocrites in his Sermon on the Mount. You can look in chapter 6. And just before going to the cross, he pronounces six woes on the religious leaders, and with each woe, he calls them hypocrites, Matthew 23. Now, the greatest spiritual battles, and this passage in Nehemiah teaches this, involve God's chosen people. Why is this? Because the evil one hates God and hates God's people. The other thing also is that this evil one knows which of God's people are most likely to be tempted by political power, by loss, by greed, by any sin whatsoever. So as the project to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem under the direction of Nehemiah progressed to its completion, many of the Jews organized opposition to this work. They tried intimidation and deceit, attempting to intimidate Nehemiah and make him fear men. But Nehemiah recognizes this spiritual battle that was going on and continued to fear God, persevering in the faith. And when the wall was finally completed, we heard in chapter 7, completed with God's help in chapter 6, in chapter 7, these very same people tried to gain political power. But again, with God's help, Nehemiah set up godly leaders. Now here's a general principle from Eden to the new Jerusalem. Over time, step by step, and it's never completed till we see God. He brings wholeness to his people. Shalom. Jesus illustrated this with a two-stage healing of a blind man. Never forget this. God always finishes what he starts. We can count on it. So now let's examine our passages to discover more of how God gives his people victory over spiritual opposition. We'll start with the Nehemiah passage. 
The two chapters together tell us that God assured Nehemiah's work on the wall succeeded, but political opposition causes Nehemiah to provide for Jerusalem's security. First of all, with God's help, the wall is quickly completed, but Tobiah subtly plots against Nehemiah. Now, let me give you the context. I'm going to look up and summarize verses 10 to 14 before this. Now, Toviah, which means my good, Yah, and Sanballat, which means strength, along with the prophetess, Noadiah, meaning meets with Yah, try to deceive Nehemiah into the sin of the fear of man rather than the fear of God. But he remains faithful in praise in imprecatory prayer of spiritual warfare against them. That's verse uh, 14, which precedes this. All of this sets the stage for even more spiritual warfare and the God-given victory of completing the wall. Now let's go to our passage. And this is all a narration by Nehemiah. And I believe he wrote this somehow. Somebody may have edited it. I don't really believe that, but that's up to the scholars. But we know that God's word is God's word and it's perfect. So then the wall, the wall was finished on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. Now in our calendar, And if you've got a study Bible or a commentary, they all totally agree. These scholars have figured it out with historical records. October 2nd, 445 B.C. So let's put this in context. I mean, the Jews know this to this day, but uh, in early August of 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came in and leveled Jerusalem, including the wall. So do the arithmetic. It's pretty simple. 141 years had passed with the walls rendered useless by the Babylonians. And here's Nehemiah coming, and he oversees the restitution so that Jerusalem could be secure in 52 days. 141 years versus 52 days. Less than two months. That's Amazing, okay? But so is God. Then we get this phrase all throughout the narration of Scripture. And it was, or King James, it came to pass. As they heard, all our enemies were afraid. And the nations round about us, then they fell greatly in their eyes. That's a literal figure of speech. And they knew that because of our God had been done the work. Here's the divine passive. Yes, we're supposed to work with God, but ultimately everything comes from him. Let's look into that a little more deeply. This, this is amazing. You know, we, we, we see a lot of evil in the world today and we wonder, but what happened here was against their will. The nations who were enemies of the Jews became fearful. And this was God's work, people. These enemies, these pagans, now realized God had overpowered their plans by empowering his people. 
to complete the work that he had put on Nehemiah's heart way back in Susa. Remember in chapter 1, we saw that his brother had given him word about the walls, and he was sad, and Artaxerxes says, what can I do? Well, now it's completed. God always completes completes the work that he assigns his people. So God has said to Nehemiah, go do this. It was completed, but not by Nehemiah's own strength, by God. Then we get this uh, conflict here. Also in those days, we're sending many nobles of Judah, their letters to Tobiah, and is coming to them because many in Judah were under oath to him, to Tobiah, because he was son-in-law of Shekenyah, which means he who is dwelling with Yah, the son of Aran, or Ara, which means a traveler. And his son, Yehonan Yahweh, has uh, graced Uh, took as a wife the daughter of Meshulam, which means friend, the son of Berachiah, which means blessed of Yahweh. Okay, so Tobiah, I told you about his name. He is a Jew, but he craved political power. He was in reality a uh, a deceptive traitor to the faith. And here's something we must understand. Because his in-laws all had Jewish names as well. Now, some scholars say there were mixed marriages here. But here's a reality, okay, for God's people from then all the way up until the present day in God's church. There are always those professing faith in God. It comes out of their mouth. But... In reality, their desire is for worldly power more than for God. And, and I say this in all humility, because I think, like I said, we're all walking contradictions, and sometimes we may want our own will or what the world tells us rather than what God wants. And now there's an intrigue here. This exchange of letters was a plan to plan a way so they could overthrow Nehemiah. And let me remind you, his name is Nehemiah, which means the comfort of Yahweh. What a perfectly named man. Here he is, he comes from 900 miles away, and God uses him to comfort his people in absolutely everything. So then, completing chapter 6, Also, his good deeds, Tobias, they were speaking in my presence and my words were delivered to him. Tobias sent the letters to make me afraid. So, by constantly talking up Tobiah, these co-conspirators, they were disrespecting Nehemiah and they wanted Nehemiah to fear them and their political power. And if he would do that, that would be a sin against God by Nehemiah. But in chapter 4, the first problem was overcome with God's help um, to build the wall. 
Now Nehemiah arranges for the political stability of Jerusalem. And don't miss this, in accordance with God's word. And it was as the wall had been built. Then I set up the doors. The word is literally doors here, but it means gates, synonyms. Then were appointed the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites. So after God had completed building the wall, Nehemiah fully secured the city by supervising the installation of the gates. And don't miss these appointments. It's been a while since we did the book of Chronicles. But the Levites, some of them were chosen to guard the gates. Some were chosen to sing in the temple. And some were appointed by God. All of this was in accordance with the instructions that Yahweh gave David, that David had received. And you can find this in 1 Chronicles 22, 25, and 26. Nehemiah was just following God's word. He continues, then I commanded Hanani, which means my grace, my brother. And more importantly, Kaniyah, which means the grace of Yah, or the grace of Yahweh, God, appointed this latter one, the prince of the palace over Jerusalem. Why? Because he's a man of truth and fearing God more than many. So both men, Nehemiah, commanded to have roles, leadership roles in the city. They have names of grace, the grace of God. Now, why is Hananiah the governor? Well, remember, who's in charge here? Not the Jews. Persia's ruling a vast quantity of the Middle East. And there's only one recognized king, Artaxerxes, who had sent Nehemiah there with his blessing. But notice the God-appointed governor. He's both God-fearing and a man of truth, more than most people. So here's the bottom line. God directed Nehemiah to establish leaders of the people in Jerusalem who were true to God and had the faith to fear him and obey him. All of this despite the plots of the intrigue of worldly Jews. God directed Nehemiah to establish the right leaders over his people. God completes the work he assigns his people. Nehemiah continues, Then I said to them, Not being opened the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. And while they are standing... They must shut the doors and must bar them. That would be in the evening. And then they were to station guards inhabiting Jerusalem, already in the city, each to the gate opposite his house. I mean, now this is common sense. But because, and we'll find out in the very next verse, of certain reasons, Jerusalem's gates for security were not to be opened until mid-morning, And then the guards were to stand in the gates that were closest to their homes. But notice here again, God directed his people in everything, including the guards of his gates. 
He is over the physical realm, the political realm, and the protection realm. God is over everything, and God completes the work that he assigns to his people. And now this last verse is important, and it's a transition verse. We're told, and the city is large and great. He's talking about how much space it takes up. And the people are few in the midst of it. And since they focused on the wall, he says, no new houses had been built. So now we know that Nehemiah has one more task. He must trust God to fill the city with his people. And we're not going to do it. But in the NIV, you can just see a whole bunch of names and numbers. And what we get is a genealogy of all the people that God was bringing in to do his work. So what we must do now, and as I thought about this, God wants them to fill Jerusalem in 445 B.C. We must pray to obey God, to work with Jesus, to fill the new Jerusalem, okay? We've got Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations, and then John saw the vision, the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down, and it's full of God's people. Now, next week, we will see God's people had great great spiritual joy from God's word. So we'll leave Nehemiah behind now and and see the same principle illustrated in Mark's gospel. And this is much simpler and much more obvious, but Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. So Jesus is asked to heal a blind man, but at first he only sees partially. And similar to how Nehemiah opened, and he's coming into Bethsaida, which means the house of fish, makes sense at the Sea of Galilee, right? And they are bringing a blind, man is inferred, and they are entreating him in order that he may touch him. So when Jesus comes into Bethsaida, and by the way, it's at the very northernmost tip, of the Sea of Galilee, right where the Jordan River flows into and feeds the Sea of Galilee. And the people, as soon as he enters it, they bring a blind man to him. And there's a very interesting word here. They are entreating Jesus to touch the blind man. They advocated on his behalf. The root of this verb is the root of the noun pericle, who is the Holy Spirit. And having taken the hand of the blind man, he led him out of the town. And having spit upon his eyes, having put his hands on him, he was asking him if anything he was seeing. Okay, now he leads the blind man away from the town, the congestion, and the crowd. And we'll have a little more on this later. And then he did two um, healing actions. And I I, I did a little research on, on saliva. And in the ancient world, people believed that saliva was truly the water the water of life, okay? Now, it has been confirmed over and over again that saliva is the best healing agent for wounds of the skin, 
That's where the phrase to lick your wounds comes from. However, we now know it doesn't really help eyes to get better in any way, okay? But um, the real healing power when he laid his hands on the eyes flowed through Jesus and into whoever was going to be healed. And then Jesus asked the man if he's now seeing. And as I thought about this, because Jesus knows everything, right? He didn't expect a full healing yet. I think he knew he hadn't done a full healing. So we're told, and having looked up, he was saying, I'm seeing the men that, as trees I am perceiving, these men that they're walking. So the blind man reports that he has some vision, but everything is not clear. Now, I wrote, Jesus sometimes heals over time. As I reflected on this, I want to say most times he heals over time. But then we come to the conclusion of this incident. But after Jesus lays hands on the blind man again, again, he sees clearly. So Mark reports, and and don't forget this. I said this often when I preached through Mark in 2004. Mark was a relative of Peter. What Mark is really writing down is what Peter told him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Peter was there when it happened. He was an eyewitness. Then again, he put the hands of him, Jesus, upon the eyes of him. This time, Jesus only touched the eyes. That's all that was needed. And we're told, and he saw clearly and was restored. And he was directly seeing clearly all things, literally. So this time, at once, Jesus fully restored his eyesight. I think this says something to the church people. May we all be assured of healing in Jesus even if it is only the final healing after walking through the valley of death with the good shepherd, Jesus. Theologically, people say that the final healing is when we see Jesus because every healing we get here is temporary. Okay, it doesn't last forever, but the final healing is final. So in the second clause, Mark says he was always able to look directly at everything and see it clearly. In other words, the final healing of his eyes was permanent. Jesus sometimes even often heals over time. And then here's this last phrase, and and I'll comment on it in just a minute. And Jesus sent him to his house saying, neither into the town thou may come. Many commentators, all of them, have said that the the key theme of Mark's gospel, first the crucifixion, but secondly, the secret of Jesus. He was always telling people who were healed, don't tell anybody. Of course, they always disobeyed, but he was saying, don't tell anybody. Why? Well, the reason is that until after he returned to heaven and Pentecost happened, 
people had the wrong idea about who the Savior was to be. He came first to save us from our sins. That's the biggest problem we all have. I said at the beginning, we're all on the wrong side of the spiritual battle. So his people expected him to overthrow Rome. So Jesus did not want his people, the Jews, to have the wrong hope, the hope about this world only. Okay, so that's the exposition of our word this morning. Let me wrap it all up. God helped Nehemiah and those he supervised to complete the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in spite of internal opposition. And the opposition turned political after physical security was established. But with God's help, Nehemiah commanded and put in place leaders who feared God to guide God's people to live according to his word. God completes his work in his people despite all kinds of opposition and all the spiritual warfare in the world. And Jesus illustrated this with his two-stage healing miracle of the blind man. God completes the work he assigns his people.